I'm Sandra Peart, Dean of the Jepson School of Leadership Studies, and on behalf of the school's students, our staff, and our faculty, it's my great pleasure to welcome you to this, the final event in our Jepson Leadership Forum series this year, Does Democracy Work? I'd like to take a few seconds to thank and uh, congratulate the co-leaders of this series this year, Dr. Thad Williamson and Dr. Allison Archer. It was their ideas and conversations that inspired this terrific theme and which brought us the wonderful speakers that we've had this year. I know you'll agree with me. Yes. It's really been a tremendous series, and we're not finished. Uh, it's going to be a wonderful event this evening as well. I'd like to as well welcome our alumni and friends who are watching us from places afar. We're live streaming this, uh, and it's wonderful to have you here as well. And now it's my great pleasure to invite Dr. Ronald A. Crutcher to the stage to uh, introduce our speaker. Thank you very much, Sandra, and let me also add my welcome to this evening's symposium. I'm pleased that you're all here. We have a very nice, a robust crowd tonight. It's fantastic. Thank you for being here with us. It's a sincere pleasure for me to introduce uh, my friend Melody Barnes to you this evening, and I want to just share a story about how we met. Um, many of you who were at my inauguration in October of 2015 will recall that Freeman Rabowski, the president of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, introduced me. A few weeks after the inauguration, I got an email from, from Freeman saying, you need to get to know Melody Barnes. She's moving back home to Richmond. And I always do what Freeman tells me to do. So I, I immediately sent out an email to Melody, and, um, and lo and behold, it turns out that they were coming, they weren't quite moving back, but they were at, in, at Thanksgiving, but they were coming uh, around Thanksgiving time. Betty and I invited them over, and Marland and Melody have been good friends since then. As a matter of fact, they're also mentors to our, our daughter, Sarah. And uh, just in case, before I introduce Melody, you need to see her other half, Marland uh, Buckner, is also here with us this evening. So, thank you. <laughs> now, Melody has had a very distinguished career, so I'm just going to give you an abridged version of her bio tonight. Uh, she's currently the co-director for policy and public affairs for the Democracy Initiative at the University of Virginia, where she also serves as a professor of practice at the Miller Center of Public Affairs and a distinguished fellow at the University of Virginia Law School. From January 2009 until January 2012, she served in the Obama administration as assistant to the president and director of the White House uh, Domestic Policy Council. Um, she also served as chief of staff, or chief counsel rather, to Senator Edward M. Kennedy on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Melody is a co-founder of M2 Solutions, a Richmond, Virginia-based public policy and domestic strategy firm. She earned her BA from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where she graduated with honors in history, and then went on to get a, day, a JD degree from the University of Michigan. Melanie serves on a number of corporate, nonprofit, and foundation boards, but what I've been most impressed with as a native, as she coming back to her, her native home, how she has 
really gotten right back into uh, the swing of things in this city and has uh, joined many of the very important efforts that we're trying to uh, promote here in, in the city of Richmond. Uh, I'm thrilled to have her as a friend uh, and as a, a, a fellow Richmonder, and I will now invite her to the stage uh, so she can share her comments with us. Well, Ron, thank you so much for that very, very generous introduction. And I will have to say that Marland and I have found that our friendship with you and with Betty is one of the great gifts that we've encountered since we've moved back here to Richmond. But you are also a gift to this entire community, not only the university, but the community. So thank you for your leadership. And I also want to thank Allison and Thad and Shannon and the coordinators of this wonderful, wonderful Jepson Leadership Speaker Series. I know that you've had speakers here from the mayor to my friend Peter Edelman and some of the most distinguished scholars in the country talking about the challenges and the most important issues that are facing our democracy today. I also realize that I am what stands between not only you all and the reception, but also you all being able to declare victory for the entire series. So I feel a little pressure, but I am looking forward to engaging with all of you all tonight. So thank you so much for having me. This evening we're going to continue a conversation about the challenges the viability, the effectiveness of democracy. But before I continue, I want to ask a few people to join me on stage tonight. Ed Shepard is 92. His gas station stopped pumping in 1995. Up this main street, there wasn't an empty building that didn't have a, a prosperous business in it. But little by little, they begin to close one after the other. And now it's down to a ghost town, a ghost county, really. When was the last time someone stopped and asked you for some oh, help? Oh, I don't know, four or five days ago. I don't remember exact. Occasionally somebody will pull in the driveway asking for directions or they're looking for something else in the county. <clears throat> All the good activity is gone and we, we're just sitting here now. Do you think whoever ends up in the White House can make a difference? I think the President of the United States wouldn't have the remotest idea where the hell McDowell County was to start with. And wouldn't be interested unless he knew how many votes he'd get out of there. Politicians are politicians. They make promises and never keep them the entire political spectrum. Everybody's telling lies. Everybody, both, both Everybody political parties. Everybody is telling lies. It starts at the top, at the President of the United States, and it goes all the way down. Uh, every one of the commercials that you see is a lie uh, because they're trying to make their opponent look bad. We're not talking about the issues. 
the things that are important to the citizens of Florida and the citizens of our country. Millennials, we grew up in a time, we grew, we came of age in a time of 9-11 happened in middle school. Right. Uh, the financial crisis happened in college. We have never really known or grown up in a time of true economic prosperity in right. the United States. We came of age in a time of hyper concentration of wealth with the very tippy top of people um, in, in the country and the world. Right. And so for us to have access, we also grew up seeing our peers in other countries, like in the UK and Canada with single payer healthcare systems. We grew up with peers uh, being able to go to college without you know, graduating with a mortgage's worth of debt. Mm -hmm. And we, we know that economically there's a better way because it has already been done. You know, uh, just a few months ago, you weren't hearing conversations about race in America. And in fact, we were being told that we lived in a post-racial society. Mm -hmm. And what has been exposed is that that's certainly not only not true, but that the lives of black folks, both black Americans and black immigrants and black people all over the country have been unfairly targeted for demise. And that's what we're aiming to stop. This is the last bastion of hope, okay? And and right now, we're on very shaky ground. You don't think there's yeah. any other bastions of hope in the world? No. No. No, I don't. No, I don't. Uh, Canada, maybe? No. No? No. Okay. This is the last bastion of hope right here, okay? Uh, right here. America. Okay. God shed his grace on there. Continued as he took a knee during the national anthem. This country stands for freedom, liberty, justice for all. And it's not happening for all right now. I don't think we needed just a nice, normal politician. I think our country was in such a state that we needed a wrecking ball to go into Washington and wreck it. This is the fight that we wage against ourselves and each other because America is not natural. Natural is tribal. We're fighting against thousands of years of human behavior and history to create something that no one's ever, that's what's exceptional about America, and that's what's, like, this ain't easy. It, it's, it's an incredible thing. Today, American democracy, its ideals, its institutions, its relationship to the economy, its very effectiveness is a source of debate and contention. And I think we know at least two things. First of all, we know that our democracy was founded on contradictions. And secondly, we know that what resulted from those contradictions created a fertile environment for the anger and for what a prominent conservative, the president of the American Enterprise Institute, Arthur Brooks, describes as the contempt that we're witnessing today. None of this should be new to us as we consider American democracy, nor the fracturing that takes place when the intricate web of norms and policies and practices and institutions that support democracy come under attack because that feeling of anger and contempt becomes widespread. And yet today there is a deepening sense that democracy can't work that democracy won't work. I don't share that point of view. Rather, as difficult as it may seem, as hard as it may be to imagine, I believe that our democracy is responding as it should to the body politic. 
The problem is that our body politic has failed. From the beginning, we built our democracy on a sick civic culture. And what we're seeing today is the fruit of that tree, the misalignment between our ideals and our, ide our reality. But, but the opportunity to pursue the civic ideas at the heart of American democracy and make them our own, not to renew, not to restore, but for the first time to make them our own and to execute upon them is in front of them, us. And we have the opportunity to have our democracy respond in kind. So this evening, I wanna to talk to you about three things. I want to talk to you about those contradictions. I want to talk to you about the resulting anger and contempt that we have to understand, that we have to acknowledge, and that we must address. And finally, I want to talk to you about a way forward, how we can claim and execute upon those ideals that we say that we aspire to. So how many of you here are history buffs? How many of you love history? Okay, that's pretty good. So you remember the Articles of Confederation, right? I mean, we always skip to the Declaration, but you remember the Articles of Confederation? Not worth the paper they were written on. In fact, when you think about the beginning of our country, it was a colossal failure. Now, it's a really interesting story and what happened and quite frankly our own state that was going about its way and trying to negotiate its own deal with France on wine and people that wouldn't pay their taxes and all of that that was happening. But we don't have time for that tonight. But what I do want to say is that by the time that blood was finally shed in Massachusetts, we realized as a new nation that we were going to have to find a new way forward if in fact we were going to survive. And what resulted from that was a constitutional republic. A constitutional republic. Now I say that because it is important to understand we are a constitutional republic. We are not a direct democracy. And that is a distinction with a difference. The rejection of democracy hundreds and hundreds of years ago reflected a deep fear of tyranny and demagoguery, and in fact, of the people and their passion. And instead, the founders, invoking the great philosophers of their time, designed a republic that in fact would provide for individual rights. They designed a government of institutions, the presidency, the legislature, the courts, and they believed that authority would come from people who consent to be governed. Civic virtue was foundational to our country, and John Stewart alluded to this in the video that you just watched. The founder said that they believed, in fact, that the natural human predisposition to pursue the common good, in fact, made self-government possible, as long as we restrained our self-interest. And what would restrain self-interest? A desire for civic health a desire to see the security and the safety and the health and well-being of everyone who lived in the community. For those of us who are living here in the Commonwealth of Virginia, this was about the common wheel. 
Crafting our country, of course, wasn't easy. I mean, we see these pictures and we've got stamps and we see all these things that make it seem, you know, it's all kind of glossy and there are these pretty pictures. It wasn't that. Imagine being locked in a room in Philadelphia through the summer and it's hot and there's no air conditioning and you are debating and arguing and challenging these very ideas. Delegates to the Constitutional Convention were concerned that we were giving away too much to the federal government, that we were giving away our rights and our liberties. There were still some who were flirting with this idea of monarchy, George Washington among them. Maybe not now, but you know, you can't really trust the people, so maybe later we'll get back to that. All of these things were part of the debate that took place. And ultimately, they fought and they debated and they compromised and they got a lot of things right. But they got some big fundamental things absolutely wrong. So liberal, and I don't mean that in the ideological sense, but liberal democracy and liberal ideas were, were articulated. And this idea of our personal liberties and tolerance and pluralism and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights were designed to try and protect those. But the framers, and you think about them, mostly landed, all men, all white, some of them slave owners, were also fearful of giving too much power to the masses. Whether we're talking about the enslaved, or women, or poor white men. And they were unwilling in varying degrees to give too much away. They protected their own power and their own wealth as they were designing the new country. So this distrust of the people led to things that today we're uncomfortable with or we're questioning or we're debating, like the Electoral College. And the fact that we weren't electing our own senators, state legislatures were doing that for a number of years because there was concern about giving away that kind of authority. Women didn't have the right to vote, as we know. And after a tense debate, they finally decided to delay the ban on importation of slaves until 1808. And of course, there was the notorious three-fifths clause. That not only hardened existing policy regime, but also the culture and an economy, not just a Southern economy, but a national economy that rests on a slave system and ensured that supremacist notions of blackness and whiteness would shape our culture and our political and our economic future for centuries to come. Political scientist Roger Smith wrote a book in the 1990s called Civic Ideals. And in that book, he implores us to recognize that the lofty American ideas that we have aren't aligned with our reality. And it never was. Our true political paradigm is bound up in civic myths that we've embraced since our founding and which have become more challenging to perpetuate over time. In fact, he wrote, throughout most of U.S. history, lawmakers pervasively and unapologetically structured the U.S. citizenship in terms of illiberal and undemocratic racial, ethnic, and gender hierarchies for reasons rooted in basic, enduring imperatives of political life. Even as we acknowledge the challenges, the mistakes of our past, and we take 
steps to try and correct them. I believe that we have to acknowledge, we have to face the fact that our founding policies and our economic and cultural practices were, have wrought the anger and the civic culture that we see today. What's most surprising to me is that so many people are shocked by this. We're all caught off guard by what we're starting to see. After all, they say that history may not repeat, but it often rhymes. And time and time again, we've seen elements of this anger, of this contempt. Only now, it seems to be heightened because it's amplified by 21st century digital media. Let me give you a few examples. Go back, it's 1828. Andrew Jackson is the new president of the United States. He has flung open the White House doors to those who he describes as the humble members of society, the farmers, the mechanics, and the laborers. And he rode that tide of populism all the way to the White House, speaking to and voicing the concerns of white Americans who had in fact been marginalized. He simultaneously was a champion of Indian removal and the massacre of thousands and thousands and thousands of Indians and a proponent of slavery. The most notorious period of American anger, of course, was the Civil War. 600,000 died in that war. And in case we have any questions, just a few days after South Carolina seceded from the Union, leading the way, they published the Declaration of the Immediate Causes, which induce and justify the secession of South Carolina from the Union. And in it they wrote, a geographical line has been drawn across the Union and all the states north of that line have united in the election of a man to the high office of the President of the United States whose opinions and purposes are hostile to slavery. The guarantees of the Constitution will then no longer exist. The equal rights of the states will be lost. The slaveholding states will no longer have the power of self-government or self-protection, and the federal government will have become their enemy. Anger. And it wasn't until the war was over and you had the Compromise of 1877 and Rutherford B. Hayes was in the White House and federal troops pulled out of the South and the nascent indicia of racial equality had evaporated and any attempt to breathe life into the promise of voting rights for African Americans disappeared, that the nation began to function again. Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt wrote an important book recently published called How Democracies Die. Gradually, though, as the Civil War generation passed from the scene, Democrats and Republicans learned to live with one another and shift the debate to economic issues. It was not just time, however, that healed partisan wounds. Mutual toleration was established only after the issue of racial equality was removed from the political agenda. In fact, attention did shift to economic issues because populism and economic progressivism were on the rise. They were a response to the anger that so many were feeling as the country started to industrialize. After the Civil War, you think about it, railroads, this was the great age of rail, and railroads started to crisscross the country. And as that started to happen, the country became smaller. 
Pittsburgh was producing steel, Cleveland was refining oil, railroads were literally driving industrialization, coal was coming from Wyoming, timber from the Pacific Northwest, minerals from the Southwest, and people were moving along with the railroads. You had farm kids that were going to big cities, you had sharecroppers and slaves that were moving, former slaves that were moving to Richmond and to New York and to Philadelphia and elsewhere. But the prosperity was not shared. Working conditions were deplorable. Child labor laws, are you kidding? And at the same time that farmers were working harder, they were making less. Crop price prices were declining at the same time that railroad costs were going up. And to add insult to injury, if you needed a mortgage or a loan, you were paying 20, 30, 50% interest because these were the days before predatory lending laws or anti-predatory lending laws existed. So by 1896, America's anger had reached a fever pitch and there was a full-throated populist movement and William Jennings Bryan, the great commoner, ran not once, not twice, but three times for the White House. And he failed, but he was voicing that anger about economic inequity that was spreading across the country. It would be 40 years until Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal that we saw the rise of economic progressivism and an attempt to facilitate greater opportunity for more people. And yet, for all that the New Deal did do, at the same time, it left racial inequality intact and lied, allowed it to harden as redlining and racial covenants and FHA-sponsored suburbs that didn't allow people of color began to flourish. So after World War II, America enjoyed a growing middle class and growing opportunity for many, but certainly not for all. But the calm, belied, tectonic shifts that were happening under the foundation of our country and that anger was directed towards the status quo, including the policies and practices and norms that were shaping our democracy. Communities that were formerly marginalized started to usher in the modern civil rights movement in the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s. And when you had that mixed with the policies of the Great Society and the anti-war movement, our laws, our relationship to and with government and our culture began to change dramatically. And you think about all that happened during that period. The desegregation of the military in 1948, Brown versus Board in 1954, the Equal Pay Act, even though relatively toothless, but this idea of equal pay for women in 1963, the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65. You had laws that were passed to ensure greater food security and to address issues of nutrition for the elderly and the poor. You had the Immigration and National Nationalization Security Act that was passed. You had Head Start passed. You had the Higher Education Act become law. You had Social Security that was modified to include Medicare and Medicaid. All of these dramatic shifts that were happening during this period of time. So what was the reaction to that? Resistance. In our own Commonwealth, Harry Byrd called for massive resistance. The editor of the News Leader 
started to talk about interposition, the idea that it wouldn't be federal authority, but in fact, it would be the states that would determine state and local action. And simultaneously, Senator Barry Goldwater was starting to change and redefine conservatism as he believed that the Eisenhower administration was too moderate, too prone to compromise, and that led him to take on LBJ and to write a defining book, The Conscience of a Conservative, that would reshape the Republican Party and conservatism forever. And in fact, even though he lost that election, what we found is that he started to draw votes from the South and from communities that had been solidly Democratic and, in, and ultimately created the foundation that would elect Ronald Reagan president in 1980, that would usher in Newt Gingrich and the contract with America and a whole new political paradigm as a result of that. The America that everyone knew was changing and fracturing. And again, from How Democracies Die, America's democratic institutions were challenged on several occasions during the 20th century, but each of those challenges was effectively contained. The guardrails held as politicians from both parties, often society as a whole, pushed back against violations that might have threatened democracy. But America's democratic norms were born in a context of exclusion during the period between the end of Reconstruction and the 1980s. As long as the political community was restricted largely to whites, Democrats and Republicans had much in common. Neither party was likely to view the other as an existential threat. The process of racial inclusion began in World War II and culminated in the 64 Civil Rights Act and the 65 Voting Rights Act would at long last finally democratize the United States, but it would also polarize it. That threat posed the greatest threat, the greatest challenge to establish forms of mutual toleration and forbearance since Reconstruction. So in other words, the America that had warring factions that had one point been able to shake hands and to move forward, that America no longer continued to exist. And this time we have to wonder if it is possible to find our way back together. And whether or not this is a problem or if in fact this is an opportunity for us. Because indeed the transition, the challenges that we saw at our founding still exist but in a 21st century form. Income inequality in the United States has been increasing over the past 15 years. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Gini coefficient. It is a global measure of inequality with zero being perfect equality and one being perfect inequality. The United States right now is at about 0.48. It sits right in the middle, and that number has been increasing, getting closer to one over the years. Inequities based on race and gender continue to persist. If you look at a snapshot, just the idea that women make significantly, 80 cents on the dollar, significantly less than men do in 2016 numbers. And you look close to home, and we compare based on the numbers that VCU provided us a few years ago, we look at what happens in Gilpin Court as compared to what happens in Westover Hills. Life expectancy, a difference of 20 years, 
83 years if you're living in Westover Hills, 63 years if you're living in Gilpin Court. Why the discrepancy? Differences in education. Those living in Gilpin Court often don't have more than a high school diploma and are often reading at an eighth grade level. Unemployment for those who are 16 years and over, 19.1% in Gilpin Court, 2.2% in Westover Hills. Access to private health insurance, 10.7% have it in Gilpin Court, 84% have it in Westover Hills. Income below the federal poverty line, 73.2% in Gilpin Court, 1.1% in Westover Hills. Those are communities that surround us that are four miles apart. There's also, because of all this, a growing sense of desperation and hopelessness in our country. In 2015, an important report was published that described to us the increase in mortality rates among white Americans ages 45 to 54, deaths of despair, people who don't have more than a high school degree, who don't have good paying jobs, who are feeling desperate and insecure and fearful. And at the same time, we see continued high levels of mortality among people of color, except in the Latino community. But if you look in the American Indian and Alaska Native communities, suicide is the eighth leading cause of death, and it is the second leading cause of death for those between the ages of 10 and 24. And all of this is happening as we are experiencing dramatic demographic shifts in our country. By the year 2030, our workforce, the majority of our workforce, 25 and under, will be comprised of people of color. By the year 2042, the majority of all people in our workforce will be comprised of people of color. And by the year 2045, America will have no majority population. As I said earlier, a growing number of Americans don't believe that democracy works for them for all of the reasons that I have described. But at root, our history and the challenges of our present day point to a failed body politic that can no longer be ignored. A democracy that, if Zeblatt and Levitsky are correct, has run out of the glue that it takes to hold us, or seemingly hold us, together. So I ask you to reconsider my question. Is this a problem, or is this an opportunity? I ask because for all that has been accomplished in the United States, all of it, the ingenuity, the innovation, the economic prowess, the strength, the diplomacy, our democracy is not inevitable. We are decaying from within. The cancer on our civic health must be addressed or we will continue to upend our norms and our institutions as we remain locked in a battle over supremacy and patriarchy and power. It seems as though we are incapable of forming a healthy American identity or democracy. And yet, as you may remember at the beginning, I told you I don't believe 
that our democracy can't work or doesn't work or will not work. So how do we proceed? Among the things that the framers got right in the Constitution was this concept of perfectibility. The idea that America can and should change is part of our DNA and it's part of our founding document. As Jefferson wrote to Madison in the winter of 1787 as the Constitution was being considered, if they approve the proposed convention in all its parts, I shall concur in it cheerfully in hopes that they will amend it whenever they shall find it work wrong. Accepting Jefferson's challenge, I want to propose community wealth building. Now my friend who you acknowledged earlier, Thad Williamson, is a University of Richmond professor in leadership studies and philosophy, economics, and politics and law. And he was the first director of our offices, of our city's Office of Community Wealth Building. So it was over a year ago that I called Thad because I wanted to consider this thorny question. I wanted to talk to him about this challenge we have around power, that which people do not give up easily, and the power imbalances that I felt had to be rebalanced, while at the same time, the imperative that we have and that we build community, that all of us across racial and ethnic and geographic lines, across gender, across all of our points of difference, find a way to come together as community and to move forward. That initial conversation led us to begin work on this concept, this new paradigm that allows us to confront entrenched inequities of power and wealth to find opportunity and a method of community-driven problem solving that aims at inclusivity and empowerment for all. There are four distinct features that we've talked about in this category of community wealth building. First of all, community participation and engagement. Second, the idea that we must have equity goals and measurements for ourselves as a community. Third, holistic strategies of encompassing physical and financial and human capital to build wealth for our community and for individuals. And finally, the use of inclusive economic tools and strategies that help us build on the existing assets in our community and bring more capital and resources here. That and I believe that this approach has promise for several different reasons. First, simply because of the idea of community that sits at its heart. Far from idealizing what happens on a local level and also understanding what has happened in our very own community, what's happened here in Richmond, we believe that in a hyper-partisan, angry, often contemptuous environment, that when people come together in community, when they have the opportunity to be proximate with one another, in furtherance of shared goals, shared aspirations, shared ideas, when they can literally bump into one another because we live next door to each other or down the street from one another, 
that this is an important place for individuals to engage and to begin our work, to argue, to debate, to compromise, to be angry, but to come back together to move forward. That doesn't mean that we reject the idea of what has to happen on the federal or the national level. Rather, what we reject is the tyranny of the or and embrace the genius of the and. It's not federal or local, it's federal and local. Because we strongly believe that on a national or federal level, there has to be a guarantee of those liberties. There has to be an assurance of protection for people. And there also should be policy that supports and engages and leverages and incentivizes what's happening on a local level. Second, we define wealth broadly. And it has to include, yes, economic security in the ways that we naturally think about wealth, but it should also include social capital, the networks. Those of you that came here with friends, that's a part of your network. How do we spread it? How do we make that larger? But it, and it also includes ideas of housing and transportation and employment, all the things that indeed make us wealthy, that help us flourish. It is the dearth of that kind of opportunity and that kind of wealth that lead people to literally kill themselves. And third, we think the very act of building community is important. If equity requires us to build a just community where everyone in the community can prosper, can reach their full potential, then it is naturally a rejection of supremacy of patriarchy, of all the different ways that we marginalize one another. And the act of setting goals, of identifying problems, of coming together, of debating, of arguing, all those things that I mentioned before, of sitting around a metaphorical table, and in fact, and indeed very real tables, is absolutely important because it requires us not only to solve our policy challenges, but it also brings us together to reshape and to reform and to rejuvenate our very institutions and systems of governance. Now we know that this is challenging work. We don't have a Disneyland vision of what democracy looks like. This isn't schoolhouse rock where it's very simple and animated. This is hard. This is two steps forward, one step back. Three steps forward, two steps back. This takes time. But at the same time, it is our view that if we are to achieve our aspirational ideals, it is work that is well worth doing. It helps us move from a zero-sum environment to one that is strengthened by what Harvard professor Danielle Allen refers to as bridging ties that connect people across demographic cleavage and are key to a connected environment and society that is more egalitarian. She writes, to the degree that a society achieves greater levels of connectedness and more equally empowers its members in economic, educational, and health domains, it builds the foundation for political equality. Thad and I argue that community wealth building offers a new paradigm not only for policy but for the practice of democratic citizenship. It is rooted in a renewed appreciation that the legitimacy of any democratic government, including our own, must be anchored in its ability to solve problems effectively and to meet the concrete needs of people.
So I conclude by saying that we have yet to live up to our aspirational ideals. But this African-American woman, this Richmonder, this Virginian, this American, believes that our past does not have to be our future. Americans have failed to fully acknowledge and address the foundational inequities that are antithetical to our stated liberal democratic principles. And the effect is a body, body politic that is in dire need of being healed. Only then will our democratic norms and our institutions and our practices follow in kind. And until then, many will continue to disregard democracy as a form of government in which they can be represented, in which they can participate, and which they believe can meet their needs. Harlem Renaissance poet Langston Hughes was one such American, if you understand and know anything about his history. And I want to leave you, as any good policy wonk would, with a few lines from one of his poems. Let America be America again. Now I encourage you all to read this poem in its entirety because it picks up on the American leitmotif of the kinds of contradictions that I talk about, of the anger that we have seen in the past and that we are feeling and experiencing and seeing right now. But at the same time, it aspires to community. It speaks to Americans and immigrants across all divisions, rural and urban, and it even nods and winks generations ago at what America can't be again because it never was, but could be in the future. Toward the end of his poem, Hughes writes, Oh, let America be America again. The land that never has been yet, and yet must be. The land where every man is free. The land that's mine, the poor man's, the Indians, the Negroes, me, who made America, whose sweat and blood, whose faith and pain, whose hand at the foundry, whose plow in the rain must bring back our mighty dream again. Thank you. So now there's an opportunity for questions and there are microphones on the aisles for anyone who would like to ask a question. Am I the only one? No. <laughs> Hi, I'm uh, come here. I'm not a local, uh, but I've been in Richmond for about 20 years. And I've been following the policies of uh, the South, I always was amazed when Little Rock happened. I was in grade school. And it's, I'm sorry, you were amazed at what? It, when Little Rock happened? 
the whites left the school because the blacks were going to go there. Okay. I mean, I just didn't understand the cultural challenges. And living in Richmond, and seeing how relatively cosmopolitan it is, uh, I'm, I'm impressed. And yet, uh, in January, the governor specifically placed a pumping station in Union Hill, a black community. He claimed blackface was left behind. It seemed like we have an undercurrent of this still going on. It's a powerful piece that probably dismantles a lot of the good feelings. You said the anger. The, the governor won't speak to it. You know, nobody wants to talk about it. The politicians avoid these sources of anger that they're the cause of. And it fascinates me that people just don't mention it. It's like the thing you don't talk about. It's the elephant in the living room. Anyway, I'd, I'd be fascinated to hear your, your thoughts about that because to me, that's the biggest roadblock. Uh, being honest in the present moment, what you're doing, how it affects the lessers among you, because they're not putting these pipelines across Virginia through the president of Dominion's yard or any of his friends. It's just the people who can't fight. And then they totally ignore the fight. The press doesn't pick it up. This is, this is I think, how our nation was founded on these contradictions. This is a contradiction itself. Taking advantage of the powerless by the powerful, and that will keep things like that in place, the same things we're concerned about right now. Thank you. Thank you. Um, a couple of things I would say in response to that. I, mean, I think, first of all, you're right. It, this is the elephant in the room. Um, there are two things. I want to address that, and then also this idea of, of power and community-based power. This is the elephant in the room. It is the issue that makes people feel uncomfortable. Um, and certainly if you're a politician, I've worked for a lot of politicians, it's not necessarily a thing that you want to lead with and, and, and go out and discuss. But at the same time, I, I believe to your point, it is absolutely imperative that we have this conversation as a community and as a country. And that we do it in a way that is honest and fact-based and, and people will debate. Um, but at the same time, that is honest, and we do it in a way that isn't hostile. It is in a way that pushes people back in their corners, but is done in a way that we can connect the dots through our history to our present day so that we can understand the challenges and how we get at the root of those challenges um, and solve them. I know there are people in the room, Harold Fitcher is in the room for communities and schools. I would imagine if you talk to Harold about the challenges that he sees in Richmond Public Schools today, you could connect the dots back through history to understand how we got there and how we need to go about solving them. But it's a difficult conversation and it's a muscle that we have to learn to exercise so that we can address these issues. I think to your, to your other point, and this goes to this idea of uh, community build, power building and community wealth building, that in order to right power imbalances, we have to find ways to bring and to, to build out tables to include the entire community so that community voice is heard. It is a, something that I've seen happen in communities around the country. It is at the same time a hard thing to do, in all honesty. Um, it is in some ways not natural. I mean, people who are used to sitting at tables with one another, tables of power, don't necessarily say, well, let me pull up a chair for someone who hasn't been here before. It often feels, and it often is, something that takes a lot of time. It takes longer than normally just kind of blowing through and moving more quickly um, to get to an answer. 
But at the same time, when we compare what's happened in communities that have tried to do this with those who haven't, what we've seen is that the solutions that are found end up being more sticky. They end up being more resilient. People find themselves to be more bought in. But at the same time, and this is the last thing I'll say in response to this, this will never be kumbaya. Right? I mean, we live in a constitutional republic. We will debate, we will argue, we will fight with one another. But part of what we have to achieve is the sense that uh, for people that the fight is at least a fair one. That I had the opportunity to participate, that my voice was heard. And even if you don't like the outcome, I live to fight another day, but I do that inside institutions and a system that I believe are, re are reliable and fair. First of all, I really enjoyed your thoughtful remarks. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, 30 years ago, the major American uh, retail corporations, beginning with Walmart, with complete, total freedom and no prohibitions, began item by item, product by product, to outsource the manufacturing mm -hmm. to other countries. And there was no prohibition on that. And I'm curious as to whether your concept of community that you spoke mm -hmm. about at the end could possibly form a basis where in selfish self-interest, American consumers of all classes could bond together in a program of some sort to insist using their vast, vast powers, economic powers, that that process slowly be reversed over, say, a 10-year period, so that once again, maybe 10 years out, at least 50% of goods sold in their stores were once again manufactured in the United States. And I, and I ask this question because I don't see that particularly drawn upon as, as a thought by politicians. And, I, and I've long, as long as I've thought about this, I think it's going to have to come from individual people bonding together. I'd love your comments on that. Thank you. Sure. Thank you for your question. A couple of, of things in response to that. I think, one, no matter where you sit on the issue of globalization and how companies respond and how consumers respond to that, that the genie is out of the bottle. The, the toothpaste is out of the tube. And even we as consumers, even as we express frustration around that, we also like our cheaper goods. We like all the things that we have access to. We like the fact that you can have, you know, you can live in Wisconsin, you can have pineapple in, in December. I mean, we like to have all of, those, all of those things. So I think we have to understand how we are going to address the issues that are associated with globalization while simultaneously recognizing that the world has become smaller. And in fact, one of the things that we know as a result of globalization is that internationally, we have created um, 
middle class, and certainly we've decreased poverty in some parts of the world as a result of the fact that the globe is much, much smaller. But I also understand the point um, that you're making, which is a desire to see more that is made um, in the United States um, by, and hopefully I, I may be uh, going a bridge too far, but I'm assuming more jobs for workers here in the United States and more goods that are produced here. I mean, I think one of the things that's, that's interesting to see is what is happening in our own community and what is being embraced in our own community and what consumers um, can aspire to, which is there is an embrace of local goods and local services, and we, and we can create those markets, and we can support those kinds of, of goods and services and the employment that is associated with them, while at the same time recognizing that we aren't going to be able to stop, and I think in many cases people don't want to stop, all that has come with the fact that we live in a global economy, and we are able to access goods and services that we otherwise wouldn't be able to, to access. But every time someone, and my dad is here, um, who often, as we drive through Scott's Edition, he's like, just how much beer can people drink? <laughs> um, but, <laughs> a lot. Um, but, you know, those are businesses, those are jobs that are being created. I look, you know, up and down Broad Street and I see, you know, smaller boutiques that only exist here in Richmond. I see um, what is produced as a result of our great cultural assets here, the businesses that come here, um, the businesses that are started here by those who are graduating from the University of Richmond, from VCU, from Reynolds Community College, from, from Virginia Union, all of that is a way for us to support that which is local and to support jobs, but at the same time recognize that we do in fact live in a global economy. Hi, I appreciated how you went through history. Um, I agreed with your premise and, and how you brought us through. And let's, but I also have this, I lived um, for a short while as a young person in a very integrated neighborhood, mm -hmm. you know, with my parents and stuff. That's all fallen apart, it's all gone away. It's like, whatever happened to all of that? So now that I have time and more understanding and experience, I want to be part of the solution. And I have to assume that half the people in the room here anyway would at least fancy themselves as wanting to be part of the solution. But I'm not bright enough to think about how to bring that table and those chairs and how I reach people that I don't see every day mm -hmm. and how I really make the connections that will start making those conversations happen besides being present at things like this. And this isn't enough. So if you have any... <clears throat> more concrete suggestions or starting suggestions that might spur some ideas for some of us to actually start something that we may not be able to think of on our own. I would appreciate that a lot. Sure, but don't go anywhere. I would want to ask you a question. Okay. Um, so what kinds of things are you involved in and engaged in already here in, your, in the community? I only live here six months out of the year. I live in uh, Connecticut the other six months. And where um, my husband and I are Osher students, we're very involved. And so in fact, most of everything you've said, we've restudied as older people. And that's why this um, hit home so much. 
Um, and I, um, uh, we go to jazz every Thursday night at VFMA, and when we first came, we were two white people who knew no one, and who invited us to come to their table but um, people, uh, dark people of, I didn't know where they were from or what they were, very educated people that ended up there just like us, they just had a different color skin. Mm -hmm. and, but they were the people who reached out. So we've had all kinds of conversations, but that still doesn't get me to that next place mm -hmm. so I've learned I learned things about Jim Crow from now one of my dearest friends in Richmond who happens to be in his 80s that I never heard growing up I didn't understand any of that um, and so it was the oh that's what they mean when they say white privilege really down and dirty when you know so I don't know if that's helping giving you an idea. Sure. And, and I was just curious. I, obviously, we haven't, this isn't set up. We've never met before. No. Um, so I, I didn't know um, what you would say, but a, a couple of things strike me. I mean, first, as, as a matter of architecture, I, I often think about these challenges as both the individual and the relational and the institutional. Mm. And this isn't, it isn't one or the or other. The other right. um, and the way that we engage with one another, and I talked about this issue of being proximate. Um, some of you may have, a couple of years ago, gone to hear Brian Stevenson speak mm. here at VCU. Shelley Fowler is here who helped bring him here um, to VCU. And Brian talks a lot about the importance of being proximate, of what we will learn from one another when we simply engage and spend time and get to know one another. Um, and in one way, I mean, you've talked about being a student of, of history and enjoying that. And, you know, might you volunteer with communities and schools? I feel like I'm matching programs in the room today. Um, but volunteer with communities and schools. You know, there are other ways that you can both engage um, and help to solve some of the challenge, um, but also spend time and really get to know one another. At the same time, we will not solve our challenges and the problems that face our country and our society and the globe through one-on-one -on -one interaction. These are systemic challenges. These are big problems. And we can address them in a number of different ways. I mean, starting here at home, what are the issues that we see before our community that sit in front of our city council? That um, are questions of you know, the, the, the cultural and the public arts board. I mean, there are a number of different um, institutions or forms of governance in the city that are shaping how our city runs, um, what our future will look like, and how do we get engaged? And it is possible to be engaged and to be informed on those issues, to engage with not only people in your community, but think about the broader associations um, and how they can come together, whether you do this through your houses of worship. I mean, there are lots of different ways that we can cross those, um, those boundaries that exist while talking about learning and thinking about how we can address those critical issues based on real understanding of what, the, of what those problems are on the local level, on the state level, and also on the federal level. I can tell you having worked in government in Washington for many, many years, government, people are paying attention. Those who are elected by you care about what you think. And as long as people believe that they can toss out the red meat, that we can retreat into the same corners, that we can build on the same foundational premise that has led to the anger and the contempt 
that I talk about, that I'm referencing what Arthur Brooks um, has written about, as long as they believe that's possible, they will continue to do it. But when people rep realize that in fact their constituents don't want that anymore, that they aren't going to buy that anymore, then people will respond. Elected officials work for us. And we have to help them understand what it is that we want and the, the vision that we have for our, our future. So how do we change that which is institutional while at the same time, how do we engage on a personal level so that we can build neighbors, we can build community? Sorry, I'm short. Hi, uh, first of all, thank you so much for being here and sharing your ideas with us today. Um, have you, you mentioned this idea of this anger in our nation a lot when you were talking to us today. And um, as someone who has been growing up in this era where my first vote was in the 2016 presidential election, I feel like a lot of this anger is coming out um, as ideas about equity and inequity regarding gender and race, um, especially about rhetoric, very um, disturbing, very um, discriminatory rhetoric um, by our elected officials. And I was wondering, as a woman who spent so much time in the political sphere and being asked by um, an undergraduate woman who hopes to go into law and potentially politics, um, how you think this rhetoric is affecting our nation, affecting our democracy, and what you think that not only we as a polarized nation, but as individuals on a college campus can do about it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for your, for your question. <laughs> you know, language, language and rhetoric have a significant effect on us as people and, and on broader society. Um, I'm thinking, and I'm actually thinking about something. Ron referenced Freeman Rabowski earlier, and see if I can get this right. And Freeman also often talks about the fact that your thoughts, you know, shape your 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 words. That your words help to shape your actions. That your actions then shape your future and shape your destiny. And I think that as we look at rhetoric, and you can look around the world. I mean, think about what we saw in Rwanda. Think about what we saw in the Balkans. Think about what we have here at home as people use and have used over the course of history language that creates a sense of us and other. And I say that at the same time, believing in the, the richness of our identity that all of us bring to the table but at the same time, having to bridge that to find our humanity and that which we share and that which we have in common. And when there's language that is disruptive to that, when there's language that challenges that, that wants to break that, then it starts to settle into the consciousness of people and a society. And in turn, we act on that. And that in turn does become our destiny. And that also means that it is our responsibility, I believe, that when that language gets used and you are present, that we have a responsibility to speak out. We have a responsibility to correct course because it isn't just language. And as a result of that, and you asked what can be done here on campus, I think certainly those kinds of actions and better understanding 
the history and understanding what the ramifications are when that kind of language and rhetoric are, are used, and speaking out and being a forceful proponent for something that's different and better and honest. Thank you very much for being here. Um, my question has to do with language, and it also has to deal with information. I'm an old newspaper person back in the day when you had a morning edition and evening edition. Everybody that. read the newspaper. <laughs> so my question has to do with how we create um, language that informs and that is thoughtful and encourages us to take a breath, to take think, breath. Mm -hmm. and to include. Um, uh, the 24-hour news cycle is, um, has not been our friend, and I would like very much to see what you think we can do to combat that. Mm -hmm. And I'll respond to that, but I have to do this. Don't go away. <laughs> I am curious. You're, you described yourself as, as a former newspaper person. A long time ago. A long time ago. And what is your reaction and response to that? Because on the one hand, all the form, digital media has given us access to so much. And there is an upside and a positive that comes with that. You know, I watch, because I spend time now on a college campus, um, I did before, did work at NYU, and watch students literally from all over the world who had gotten to know each other or started to connect with one another using technology, and then were able to start to build relationships from that. We've seen democratic movements, you know, come about as a result of that, but at the same time, I, I have to say I, I, I agree with you and it, it also finds a place to create a wedge and where fracturing already exists to, to, to widen the divide. Um, and certainly to provide us with a lot of, of misinformation and it's hard. I mean, you get up in the morning, you take your kids, your grandkids to school or to the park and you go to the grocery store and you go to, your, go to job trying to sift through it all to find out what's, what's accurate and what's not, mm. particularly in an environment where people are self-selecting to read what makes them feel comfortable, means that we've created a significant problem. So I, I'm curious, as someone in, of the industry, um, have what two, you would suggest. Two adult daughters um, who are now uh, news producers and a son-in-law. And I sit and I go through the news and I say, as a matter of fact, I send them stories that I think are important that are being ignored. Um, and then, you know, but what, and I'm trying to get back into writing again, but uh, as far as, I have conversations with people. I talk about the effect of the 24-hour news cycle. Um, and if I'd had a second question, it would be about the other positive aspects of technology and something I wanted to ask you about later, but, um, so yeah, but I do wish we could talk to people and get them to understand that what we are experiencing is unprecedented. The speed of news is unprecedented. The, pro the process of, of digesting it and thinking and accomplishing some attempt at wisdom is, um, is very, very difficult. And, and I think people, if this is all you've ever known, um, it may be that you can't, um, you can't envision 
anything else. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I sound like I'm an old fogey, but I think, I think the human process is, requires time. And, and that's what I would like people to know. I don't know if it would help, but I think it would. Yeah. Well, I guess if, if you're an old fogey, I'm an old fogey with you. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, and and I, I agree. I mean, I remember when I was first starting out, my first job out of law school, so this was 1989, 90, and uh, <laughs> it was kind of pre-email. Mm -hmm. um, I feel very old now. Um, and in the process of writing legal documents, I remember one of the senior associates was saying, Legal documents used to be uh, shorter and better, mm -hmm. but now because of technology, they they just kind of, people just kind of keep adding and adding and adding and adding. Um, and I think it is it goes to what you're saying. There there isn't that pause. There isn't that time to think. That time to reflect. And certainly we see it. And this goes to the young woman's question a minute ago. There's also a sense of uh, there's a barrier. People feel like they can say anything. I don't, I don't know you, I'm just responding to someone that's out there um, in cyberspace. Yeah. Um, so the language that's get, that gets used, uh, the harshness, the tone, um, not to mention you know, playing fast and loose with facts, all of that, that comes, to, comes to play. But ultimately, and this is kind of, it goes back to being in a constitutional republic in many ways, and this is, but it's an economic issue, we get to decide. In, so, in many ways, and by that I mean we are the consumers of this, um, and there's a business model that uh, is wrapped around this, and we get to decide what we want to uh, use, what we think is good, what we want to tune into. And I say that recognizing that right now our lives are really interconnected with, with all of this. You know, I'm the first one, I was like, oh, I forgot that, let me go online and order it, and it can get here in, t in five minutes. Um, so our lives are bound up in this, but at the same time, we as a society have to decide what it is that we want and how it is that we are going to, to choose to, to live and then how it is that we're going to choose to use these tools. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. Dickon Barnes, Dickon Barnes, Mrs. Barnes. Uh, there's so much going on. It was great to hear you tonight. I did not know what to expect when the title is Does Democracy Work? To hear you do the deep dive that you did tonight with the audience that you have, I was really fascinated by it. Uh, when you mentioned Je uh, Madison and Jefferson, Jefferson wrote something that I hadn't heard about at, uh, and why net neutrality is so important, like looking at the Statue of Liberty and knowing that the chains on her ankles there, most people don't know that they exist. But one of the things that uh, Madison did say that back in during the Federalist Paper, that a man who is possessed of wealth whose lulls on his sofa or rolls in his carriage cannot judge the wants or feelings of the day laborer. He went on to conclude with that, that uh, landowners ought to have a share in the government to support these invaluable interests and to balance the check of the others. They ought to be so constituted as to protect the minority of the opulent against the majority. The Senate, therefore, ought to be this body and to answer uh, these purposes, they ought to have permanency and stability. Are you familiar with that? 
Um, parts of it, but not not yeah. all of it. No. I had never heard that until this year, until I found it on the internet. Yeah. There is so much going on. When <laughs> uh, See, it can be useful. It, it is very useful. And but Chuck Richardson said something too. Protecting the protecting the minority of the, the opulent minority, mm -hmm. and that was just unbelievable to me that this is what Madison said and it was never taught to us in school or the chains on the ankles of the Statue of Liberty if you look it up. I also know the Office of Community Wealth Building and would stop by there occasionally and thought it was such a great opportunity and the only one in the country. But as Dr. King said, the new civil rights movement will be economic. Mm -hmm. uh, we are having a meeting on April 20th, Saturday after this coming Saturday. Have you moved back to the area? Oh, we've been back here for almost four years. Excellent, mm -hmm. excellent. We're having a meeting on April 20th. I'll call it, I'll call it the new Black Panther Party. And I'd like to invite that gentleman in the jacket who stood up earlier, who's gone, the newspaper lady and the lady from Connecticut, to come and join the new Black Panther Party movement. But I'd like to also invite you, I emailed some of the, text some of the people who said that you should be here also, because the things you're saying, we need to do that deep dive. Solutions is what this meeting is about. It's not a meeting or a talking contest. It's a working session to come up with solutions in reaction to the governor's blackface here in Virginia. To me, it's no coincidence that as we approach the 400th anniversary of captive Africans landing in 1619, that Donald Trump is president, that the governor has a blackface picture back in his college days, and that we have, as you say, an opportunity to make things happen. So I will get with you after this, but uh, I, I guess I, and the question that I have for you is being in Washington <laughs> and knowing the inner workings of government and how Republicans are so divisive, sometimes even having a conversation with people who are seemingly existentialists rather than the Christians they claim, claim to be, how do you bridge that gap? That's the question. Well, I, I thank you for your question um, and the invitation. Um, there, when I started the video, um, one of the men that spoke uh, spoke to the fact that he believed that people were lying on both sides of the aisle. Um, and I, I think that what we have to come to grips with is beyond a political solution and the focus on the political, which I have done for most of my career, is that we also have to do a deep dive to look at something that, in my opinion, is even more important, which is what sits at the root of these challenges and these problems. And we have to find a way to do that so that we ultimately can have the kind of government that we want, that we have the representation that we believe that we need, but at the same time we've been honest with ourselves about what's foundational to the challenges that sit before us today. And those challenges don't just play out in two-year or four-year cycles, they are play out in generational cycles across centuries. And if we can start to focus on that and do that in a way that has us focus as a community, as I said, gets us out of a zero-sum game view, out of just thinking about political parties, and you know, everybody knows where I sit and where I, who I work for, I like to win elections too, but gets us beyond that to ask ourselves deeper questions about what would be good for our community 
How can we all benefit and prosper? How can we be a healthy community? How can we aspire to that civic virtue? Then I think that we can start to get to the kinds of solutions and the kind of representation that we want. Again, not kumbaya, but at the same time, have a healthy functioning democracy that is responding to a healthy functioning body politic. I'll leave it there. Before you disperse, let me just say that the conversations may continue in the lobby as you join us for a reception. We'd love to see you there. Uh, but I, I feel I've been set up a little bit. Uh, at this uh, event, I always announce what the topic is going to be <laughs> next year. Uh, and it's going to be digital dystopias, truth, <laughs> not quite finished, truth and representation in a digital age. I'm sure this conversation will come up again and again <laughs> next year. Please join me in uh, thanking Melody one more time. <laughs>